Section sixteen of White Knights and Other Stories by Fyodor Dostoevsky. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Notes from Underground by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Translated from the Russian by Constance Garnett. Part two. Apropos of Wet Snow. Chapter nine. Into my house come bold and free, its rightful mistress there to be. I stood before her crushed, crestfallen, revoltingly confused, and I believe I smiled as I did my utmost to wrap myself in the skirts of my ragged, wadded dressing-gown, exactly as I had imagined the scene not long before in a fit of depression. After standing over us for a couple of minutes, Apollon went away, but that did not make me more at ease. What made it worse was that she, too, was overwhelmed with confusion, more so, in fact, than I should have expected. At the sight of me, of course. "'Sit down,' I said mechanically, moving a chair up to the table, and I sat down on the sofa. She obediently sat down at once, and gazed at me open-eyed, evidently expecting something from me at once. This naivete of expectation drove me to fury, but I restrained myself. She ought to have tried not to notice, as though everything had been as usual, while instead of that she—and I dimly felt that I should make her pay dearly for all this. "'You have found me in a strange position, Liza,' I began, stammering and knowing that this was the wrong way to begin. "'No, no, don't imagine anything,' I cried, seeing that she had suddenly flushed. "'I am not ashamed of my poverty. On the contrary. I look with pride in my poverty. I am poor but honorable. One can be poor and honorable," I muttered. However, would you like tea? No, she was beginning. Wait a minute. I leapt up and ran to Apollon. I had to get out of the room somehow. Apollon! I whispered in feverish haste, flinging down before him the seven roubles which had remained all the time in my clenched fist. Here are your wages, you see I give them to you. But for that you must come to my rescue. Bring me tea and a dozen rusks from the restaurant. If you won't go, you'll make me a miserable man. You don't know what this woman is. This is everything. You may be imagining something, but you don't know what that woman is." Apollon, who had already sat down to his work and put on his spectacles again, at first glanced askance at the money without speaking or putting down his needle. Then, without paying the slightest attention to me or making any answer, he went on busying himself with his needle, which he had not yet threaded. I waited before him for three minutes with my arms crossed a la Napoleon. My temples were moist with sweat. I was pale, I felt it. But, thank God, he must have been moved to pity looking at me. Having threaded his needle, he deliberately got up from his seat, deliberately moved back his chair, deliberately took off his spectacles, deliberately counted the money, and finally asking me over his shoulder, "'Shall I get a whole portion?' deliberately walked out of the room. As I was going back to Liza, the thought occurred to me on the way. Shouldn't I run away just as I was in my dressing-gown, no matter where, and then let happen what would? I sat down again. She looked at me uneasily. For some minutes we were silent. 
I will kill him! I shouted suddenly, striking the table with my fist so that the ink spurted out of the inkstand. What are you saying? she cried, starting. I will kill him! Kill him! I shrieked, suddenly striking the table in absolute frenzy, and at the same time fully understanding how stupid it was to be in such a frenzy. You don't know, Liza, what that torturer is to me. He is my torturer. He has gone now to fetch some rusks. He— And suddenly I burst into tears. It was an hysterical attack. How ashamed I felt in the midst of my sobs! But still I could not restrain them. She was frightened. "'What is the matter? What is wrong?' she cried, fussing about me. "'Water! Give me water! Over there!' I muttered, in a faint voice, though I was inwardly conscious that I could have got on very well without water, and without muttering in a faint voice. But I was what is called putting it on, to save appearances, though the attack was a genuine one. She gave me water, looking at me in bewilderment. At that moment Apollon brought in the tea. It suddenly seemed to me that this commonplace, prosaic tea was horribly undignified and paltry after all that had happened. And I blushed crimson. Liza looked at Apollon with positive alarm. He went out without a glance at either of us. "'Liza, do you despise me?' I asked, looking at her fixedly, trembling with impatience to know what she was thinking. She was confused, and did not know what to answer. "'Drink your tea,' I said to her angrily. I was angry with myself, but of course it was she who would have to pay for it. A horrible spite against her suddenly surged up in my heart. I believe I could have killed her. To revenge myself on her, I swore inwardly not to say a word to her all the time. She is the cause of it all, I thought. Our silence lasted for five minutes. The tea stood on the table. We did not touch it. I had got to the point of purposely refraining from beginning in order to embarrass her further. It was awkward for her to begin alone. Several times she glanced at me with mournful perplexity. I was obstinately silent. I was, of course, myself the chief sufferer, because I was fully conscious of the disgusting meanness of my spiteful stupidity, and yet at the same time I could not restrain myself. "'I want to get away from there altogether,' she began to break the silence in some way, but poor girl! That was just what she ought not to have spoken about at such a stupid moment to a man so stupid as I was. My heart positively ached with pity for her tactless and unnecessary straightforwardness, but something hideous at once stifled all compassion in me. It even provoked me to greater venom. I did not care what happened. Another five minutes passed. "'Perhaps I am in your way,' she began timidly, hardly audibly, and was getting up. But as soon as I saw this first impulse of wounded dignity, I positively trembled with spite, and at once burst out. "'Why have you come to me? Tell me that, please!' I began, gasping for breath, and regardless of logical connection in my words. I longed to have it all out at once, at one burst. I did not even trouble how to begin. "'Why have you come?' "'Answer! Answer!' I cried, hardly knowing what I was doing. I'll tell you, my good girl, why you have come. You've come because I talked sentimental stuff to you then. So now you are soft as butter and longing for fine sentiments again. So you may as well know that I was laughing at you then. And I am laughing at you now. Why are you shuddering? Yes, 
I was laughing at you. I had been insulted just before at dinner by the fellows who came that evening before me. I came to you, meaning to thrash one of them, an officer. But I didn't succeed. I didn't find him. I had to avenge the insult on someone to get back my own again. You turned up. I vented my spleen on you and laughed at you. I had been humiliated. So I wanted to humiliate. I had been treated like a rag, so I wanted to show my power. That's what it was, and you imagined I had come there on purpose to save you. Yes? You imagined that? You imagined that? I knew that she would perhaps be muddled and not take it all in exactly, but I knew too that she would grasp the gist of it very well indeed. And so indeed she did. She turned white as a handkerchief, tried to say something, and her lips worked painfully, but she sank on a chair as though she had been felled by an axe, and all the time afterwards she listened to me with her lips parted and her eyes wide open, shuddering with awful terror. The cynicism, the cynicism of my words overwhelmed her. "'Save you!' I went on, jumping up from my chair and running up and down the room before her. "'Save you from what? But perhaps I am worse than you myself. Why didn't you throw it in my teeth when I was giving you that sermon?' But what did you come here yourself for? Was it to read us a sermon? Power! Power was what I wanted then. Sport was what I wanted. I wanted to wring out your tears, your humiliation, your hysteria. That was what I wanted then. Of course, I couldn't keep it up then, because I am a wretched creature. I was frightened, and the devil knows why, gave you my address in my folly. Afterwards, before I got home, I was cursing and swearing at you because of that address. I hated you already because of the lies I had told you. Because I only like playing with words, only dreaming. But do you know, what I really want is that you should all go to hell. That is what I want. I want peace. Yes, I'd sell the whole world for a farthing, straight off, so long as I was left in peace. Is the world to go to pot, or am I to go without my tea? I say that the world may go to pot for me as long as I always get my tea. Did you know that, or not? Well, anyway, I know that I am a blackguard, a scoundrel, an egoist, a sluggard. Here I have been shuddering for the last three days at the thought of your coming. And you know what has worried me particularly for these three days? That I posed as such a hero to you and now you would see me in a wretched torn dressing-gown, beggarly, loathsome. I told you just now that I was not ashamed of my poverty, so you may as well know that I am ashamed of it. I am more ashamed of it than of anything, more afraid of it than of being found out if I were a thief, because I am as vain as though I had been skinned and the very air blowing on me hurt. Surely by now you must realize that I shall never forgive you for having found me in this wretched dressing-gown, just as I was flying at Apollon like a spiteful cur. The Saviour! The former hero was flying like a mangy, unkempt sheep-dog at his lackey, and the lackey was jeering at him. And I shall never forgive you for the tears I could not help shedding before you just now, like some silly woman put to shame. And for what I am confessing to you now, I shall never forgive you, either. Yes, you must answer for it all, because you turned up like this, because I am a blackguard, because I am the nastiest, stupidest, absurdest, and most envious of all the worms on earth, who are not a bit better than I am, but the devil knows why are never put to confusion. 
while I shall always be insulted by every louse that is my doom. And what is it to me that you don't understand a word of this? And what do I care, what do I care about you, and whether you go to ruin there or not? Do you understand? How I shall hate you now, after saying this, for having been here and listening? Why, it's not once in a lifetime a man speaks out like this, and then it is in hysterics. What more do you want? Why do you still stand confronting me after all this? Why are you worrying me? Why don't you go?" But at this point a strange thing happened. I was so accustomed to think and imagine everything from books, and to picture everything in the world to myself just as I had made it up in my dreams beforehand, that I could not all at once take in this strange circumstance. What happened was this. Liza, insulted and crushed by me, understood a great deal more than I imagined. She understood from all this what a woman understands, first of all, if she feels genuine love. That is, that I was myself unhappy. The frightened and wounded expression on her face was followed first by a look of sorrowful perplexity. When I began calling myself a scoundrel and a blackguard, and my tears flowed—the tirade was accompanied throughout by tears—her whole face worked convulsively. She was on the point of getting up and stopping me. When I finished, she took no notice of my shouting. "'Why are you here? Why don't you go away?' But realized only that it must have been very bitter to me to say all this. Besides, she was so crushed, poor girl. She considered herself infinitely beneath me. How could she feel anger or resentment? She suddenly leapt up from her chair with an irresistible impulse, and held out her hands, yearning towards me, though still timid and not daring to stir. At this point there was a revulsion in my heart, too. Then she suddenly rushed to me, threw her arms around me, and burst into tears. I, too, could not restrain myself, and sobbed as I never had before. They won't let me. I can't be good, I managed to articulate. Then I went to the sofa, fell on it, face downwards, and sobbed on it for a quarter of an hour in genuine hysterics. She came close to me, put her arms around me, and stayed motionless in that position. But the trouble was that the hysterics could not go on forever, and—I am writing the loathsome truth—lying face downwards on the sofa with my face thrust into my nasty leather pillow, I began by degrees to be aware of a far-away involuntary but irresistible feeling that it would be awkward now for me to raise my head and look Liza straight in the face. Why was I ashamed? I don't know, but I was ashamed. The thought, too, came into my overwrought brain that our parts now were completely changed, that she was now the heroine, while I was just such a crushed and humiliated creature as she had been before me that night. Four days before. And all this came into my mind during the minutes I was lying on my face on the sofa. My God! Surely I was not envious of her then. I don't know, to this day I cannot decide, and at the time, of course, I was still less able to understand what I was feeling than now. I cannot get on without domineering and tyrannizing over someone. But there is no explaining anything by reasoning, and so it is useless to reason. I conquered myself, however, and raised my head. I had to do so sooner or later, and I am convinced, to this day, that it was just because I was ashamed to look at her 
that another feeling was suddenly kindled and flamed up in my heart, a feeling of mastery and possession. My eyes gleamed with passion, and I gripped her hands tightly. How I hated her, and how I was drawn to her at that minute! The one feeling intensified the other. It was almost like an act of vengeance. At first there was a look of amazement, even of terror, on her face, but only for one instant. She warmly and rapturously embraced me. End of chapter 9 Chapter 10 A quarter of an hour later I was rushing up and down the room in frenzied impatience. From minute to minute I went up to the screen and peeped through the crack at Liza. She was sitting on the ground with her head leaning against the bed, and must have been crying. But she did not go away, and that irritated me. This time she understood it all. I had insulted her finally. But there's no need to describe it. She realized that my outburst of passion had been simply revenge, a fresh humiliation, and that to my earlier almost causeless hatred was added, now, a personal hatred, born of envy. Though I do not maintain positively that she understood all this distinctly, but she certainly did fully understand that I was a despicable man, and what was worse, incapable of loving her. I know I shall be told that this is incredible, but it is incredible to be as spiteful and stupid as I was. It may be added that it was strange I should not love her, or at any rate appreciate her love. Why is it strange? In the first place, by then, I was incapable of love. For I repeat, with me loving meant tyrannizing and showing my moral superiority. I have never in my life been able to imagine any other sort of love, and have nowadays come to the point of sometimes thinking that love really consists in the right, freely given by the beloved object, to tyrannize over her. Even in my underground dreams I did not imagine love except as a struggle. I began it always with hatred and ended it with moral subjugation and afterwards I never knew what to do with the subjugated object. And what is there to wonder at in that, since I had succeeded in so corrupting myself, since I was so out of touch with real life, as to have actually thought of reproaching her, and putting her to shame for having come to me to hear fine sentiments, and did not even guess that she had come not to hear fine sentiments, but to love me, because to a woman all reformation, all salvation from any sort of ruin, and all moral renewal, is included in love and can only show itself in that form. I did not hate her so much, however, when I was running about the room and peeping through the crack in the screen. I was only insufferably oppressed by her being here. I wanted her to disappear. I wanted peace, to be left alone in my underground world. Real life oppressed me with its novelties so much that I could hardly breathe. But several minutes passed, and she still remained, without stirring, as though she were unconscious. I had the shamelessness to tap softly at the screen, as though to remind her. She started, sprang up, and flew to seek her kerchief, her hat, her coat, as though making her escape from me. Two minutes later she came from behind the screen and looked with heavy eyes at me. I gave a spiteful grin, which was forced, however, to keep up appearances, and I turned away from her eyes. "'Good-bye,' she said, going towards the door. I ran up to her, seized her hand, opened it, thrust something in it, and closed it again. Then I turned it once and dashed away in haste to the other corner of the room, to avoid seeing, anyway. 
I did mean a moment since to tell a lie, to write that I did this accidentally, not knowing what I was doing through foolishness, through losing my head. But I don't want to lie, and so I will say straight out that I opened her hand and put the money in it, from spite. It came into my head to do this while I was running up and down the room, and she was sitting behind the screen. But this I can say for certain. Though I did that cruel thing purposely, it was not an impulse from the heart, but came from my evil brain. This cruelty was so affected, so purposely made up, so completely a product of the brain, of books, that I could not even keep it up a minute. First I dashed away to avoid seeing her, and then in shame and despair rushed after Liza. I opened the door in the passage and began listening. "'Liza! Liza!' I cried on the stairs, but in a low voice, not boldly. There was no answer, but I fancied I heard her footsteps, lower down on the stairs. "'Liza!' I cried more loudly. No answer. But at that minute I heard the stiff outer glass door open heavily with a creak, and slam violently. The sound echoed up the stairs. She had gone. I went back to my room in hesitation. I felt horribly oppressed. I stood still at the table, beside the chair on which she had sat and looked aimlessly before me. A minute passed. Suddenly I started. Straight before me on the table I saw—in short, I saw a crumpled, blue, five-rouble note, the one I had thrust into her hand a minute before. It was the same note. It could be no other. There was no other in the flat. So she had managed to fling it from her hand on the table at the moment when I had dashed into the further corner. Well, I might have expected that she would do that. Might I have expected it? No. I was such an egoist. I was so lacking in respect for my fellow creatures that I could not even imagine she would do so. I could not endure it. A minute later I flew like a madman to dress, flinging on what I could at random, and ran headlong after her. She could not have got two hundred paces away when I ran out into the street. It was a still night and the snow was coming down in masses and falling almost perpendicularly, covering the pavement, and the empty street, as though with a pillow. There was no one in the street. No sound was to be heard. The street lamps gave a disconsolate and useless glimmer. I ran two hundred paces to the crossroads and stopped short. Where had she gone? And why was I running after her? Why? to fall down before her, to sob with remorse, to kiss her feet, to entreat her forgiveness. I longed for that. My whole breast was being rent to pieces, and never, never shall I recall that minute with indifference. But what for? I thought. Should I not begin to hate her, perhaps even to-morrow, just because I had kissed her feet to-day? Should I give her happiness? Had I not recognized that day, for the hundredth time, what I was worth? Should I not torture her? I stood in the snow, gazing into the troubled darkness, and pondered this. And will it not be better, I mused fantastically afterwards at home, stifling the living pang of my heart with fantastic dreams, will it not be better that she should keep the resentment of the insult forever? Resentment! Why, it is purification! It is a most stinging and painful consciousness! To-morrow I should have defiled her soul and have exhausted her heart, while now the feeling of insult will never die in her heart, 
and however loathsome the filth awaiting her, the feeling of insult will elevate and purify her, by hatred, hmm, perhaps too by forgiveness. Will all that make things easier for her, though? And, indeed, I will ask on my own account here an idle question. Which is better, cheap happiness or exalted sufferings? Well, which is better? So I dreamed as I sat at home that evening, almost dead with the pain in my soul. Never had I endured such suffering and remorse, yet could there have been the faintest doubt when I ran out from my lodging that I should turn back halfway? I never met Liza again, and I have heard nothing of her. I will add, too, that I remained for a long time afterwards pleased with the phrase about the benefit from resentment and hatred, in spite of the fact that I almost fell ill from misery. Even now, so many years later, all this is somehow a very evil memory. I have many evil memories now, but hadn't I better end my notes here? I believe I made a mistake in beginning to write them. Anyway, I have felt ashamed all the time I've been writing this story. So it's hardly literature, so much as a corrective punishment. Why, to tell long stories showing how I have spoiled my life through morally rotting in my corner, through lack of fitting environment, through divorce from real life and rankling spite in my underground world, would certainly not be interesting. A novel needs a hero, and all the traits for an anti-hero are expressly gathered together here. And what matters most, it all produces an unpleasant impression. For we are all divorced from life. We are all cripples, every one of us more or less. We are so divorced from it that we feel at once a sort of loathing for real life, and so cannot bear to be reminded of it. Why, we have come almost to looking upon real life as an effort, almost as hard work, and we are all privately agreed that it is better in books. And why do we fuss and fume sometimes? Why are we perverse and ask for something else? We don't know what ourselves. It would be the worse for us if our petulant prayers were answered. Come, try, give any one of us, for instance, a little more independence. Untie our hands, widen the spheres of our activity, relax the control, and we—yes, I assure you, we should be begging to be under control again at once. I know that you will very likely be angry with me for that, and will begin shouting and stamping. Speak for yourself, you will say, and for your miseries in your underground holes, and don't dare to say all of us. Excuse me, gentlemen, I am not justifying myself with that all of us. As for what concerns me in particular, I have only in my life carried to an extreme what you have not dared to carry halfway, and what's more, you have taken your cowardice for good sense, and have found comfort in deceiving yourselves. So that perhaps, after all, there is more life in me than in you. Look into it more carefully. Why, we don't even know what living means now, what it is, and what it is called. Leave us alone without books, and we shall be lost and in confusion at once. We shall not know what to join on to, what to cling to, what to love and what to hate, what to respect and what to despise. We are oppressed at being men, men with a real individual body and blood. We are ashamed of it. We think it a disgrace, and try to contrive to be some sort of impossible generalized man. We are stillborn, and for generations past have been begotten, not by living fathers, and that suits us better and better. 
We are developing a taste for it. Soon we shall contrive to be born somehow from an idea. But enough. I don't want to write more from underground. The notes of this paradoxalist do not end here, however. He could not refrain from going on with them, but it seems to us that we may stop here. End of chapter 10 And end of Notes from Underground by Fyodor Dostoevsky Recording by Bill Borst Jamestown, New York